Hi, this is Steve Smith and Rich Young from Brian Cave Leighton Paisner, and welcome again to our podcast. Rich, today we're talking about team selection in the Olympics, and which is basically how you uh, decide who is going to be going to the Olympics to represent the United States. Talk to us a little bit about the importance of that. Well, when you're selecting an Olympic team, you really have your eye on two different balls. One ball is you want to pick the team or the individual athletes for their individual events that have the best chance of winning medals. The other is you want to make sure that the process is fair. It doesn't have bias and things like that in it. Um, and so there's really, if you look at the Tokyo selection procedures for the, the summer sports, there's a pretty broad spectrum. Uh, on one end, there's swimming, and you'll hear from Tim Henchy later. It's the fastest time at Olympic trials is guaranteed to go. Um, Almost guaranteed, right? No, the fastest, second, second fastest. fastest time is guaranteed to go. <laughs> second fastest time usually goes because there's a cap on the number of right. swimmers. Um, and at the other extreme are sports where there is a committee that based on tryouts and camps and things like that, they just pick the team. And in the middle, there's something like gymnastics where they have Olympic trials, and if you finish first and second in the all-around, you make the four-person team to compete in the team event. But then there's a selection committee that picks the other two members of that team based on criteria and they pick the individual performers for the individual apparatuses. So it's quite a spectrum. You have drafted selection procedures for a whole lot of different national governing bodies. How, how does this whole process work? Well, it's uh, it, the bottom line is, as an NGB, you have to put together a written document that says to the world, this is how we're going to select our team. And uh, the interesting thing is technically in, in the laws of the Olympics, the USOPC is the one that selects the team, but they look to the NGBs to make recommendations, and very, very rarely will the USOPC ever overturn a US, an NGB's recommendation. So it really comes down to the NGB figuring out the best way to do that. So that involves sitting down and putting together a procedure, and the USOPC is involved in that. They have a, a working group that will review the procedures, ask questions, make sure certain issues are covered. But ultimately, it falls on the NGB, and then it leads to you know a set of choices. And, Rich, you hit on really the most important one is how will the team be selected? Is it going to be purely objective, like a USA Swimming, where if you're – you know, you have the best time you go, and if you if you don't, you don't go. Um, to the other end, where and especially with teams, where it has to be more subjective, <clears throat> and in doing that, you you're going to pick what you think is the best team, which may not necessarily be the collection of the 12 best players in that team or the 10 best players. And so then the question is, how do you do that, and how do you do it in a where in a way that's fair for the athletes? You know, a lot of times you will hear complaints that says, oh, well, you know, I had no chance because coach so-and-so is important in picking the team and I and, and he don't have a good relationship, so I'm not going to get picked. That's always something that NGBs are very sensitive to, and so you try to work to avoid that by having 
uh, you know, committees involved in the selection and checks and balances for all of that. the one of the things that really uh, creates issues for national governing bodies is the selection or the quotas that the international federations and the IOC has on the number of athletes who can compete in the Olympics. Uh, what it leads to is, you know, you may want to say we want to have the number one or the top two people in each event automatically qualify. But you may not have room on the Olympic team for all of them. Uh, one example I'll give is weightlifting, where you'll have a certain number of categories, but you will have less than that number of categories who, of athletes who can go to the Olympics, which then creates a real interesting dilemma. So if Rich and I are in the same weight class, we can tell who's better between Rich and me because, by who lifts the most weight at a trials. But then what happens when uh, maybe there are eight or nine athletes who win their weight category, but only four can go to the Olympics. So how do you rank between people in different weight classes? Because that's that's just difficult. And in weightlifting's case, they've come up with formulas that would say, this is sort of the, the denominator, what you lift is the numerator, and whoever has the highest percentage goes, uh, which creates its own issues. You know, is it really fair, you know, if in the heavyweight category, my denominator is a lot higher because we have an incredible world champion who lifts incredible amounts of weights. Uh, so it creates a lot of issues like that. And so uh, that's a, an important thing for an NGB to figure out. And then the other thing that I always encourage. Uh, but, but before that, let me, let, me just, let me just do a little more background on that. So the IOC is extremely conscious of having a certain number of athletes at the Olympic Games. You know, they try to hit 10,000 because right. the more athletes, the more expensive it is and the like. So they tell the international federations, you're only going to get a, so, a certain number of athletes. Then the international federation has to decide, well, we have all these different events and we want to add new events. That's fine. You only get a certain number of athletes. So then they tell their national uh, governing bodies and the Olympic committees in this case, you're only going to get 26 men swimmers and 26 women swimmers, and we have this number of events, and you're allowed two swimmers per event, but if you don't have duplicates with the relays and the number of events they have, it's more than 26 swimmers. So, so you we'll need talk- a Michael Phelps to come in and yeah, qualify at multiple and, events. Yeah, and so... Yeah. We're going to talk to Tim Hinchy later, but that's where those kind of problems come in. And your weightlifting is a, is a perfect example. You could be the best weightlifter in the United States in a particular weight, and you don't get to go to the games. That's right. Um, so, sorry to interrupt. What no, no, that's right. It creates it creates a lot of heartbreak because you know, gee, I'm the number two swimmer in my event, but because you know the numbers work out, I might not go to the games. So that that does make it difficult. Um, so the other thing that I was going to mention is that uh, inevitably in selection processes, crazy things happen that you uh, want to have thought about and to have figured out what happens if and how do we address that problem. So, you know, often the, the biggest thing that NGBs will have to deal with is what happens if 
one of our athletes, after he or she is qualified, becomes injured and maybe can't compete in the Olympics, how do we replace that athlete? And it even gets into the level of detail of what happens if it happens before a certain date and after a certain date. You know, Rich, we had a, a case a number of years ago that really came down to the fact that when an athlete uh, ended up off the team, occurred after a date by which the NGB could substitute somebody. So you couldn't go and say, let's take the number three person in this event and put her in the games. Uh, you had to take somebody who was already on the team. That's an example that you want to have thought about all these different contingencies and figure out what exactly happens because ultimately you want it to be as fair and as transparent as possible and people to know what they're getting into going into the games. And, and if you think about it from the athlete's perspective, here is somebody who has made incredibly incredible sacrifices for a lot of years. The Olympics is the deal in most sports and all of their dreams have been tied to becoming an Olympian and it has economic consequences to them and everything else and they just miss making the team and if the rules aren't crystal clear there is a pretty heavy temptation to, if you didn't make the team on the court, you try to make the team in the court. And so, <laughs> and so they, they bring a contest under article, under article nine or section nine. Uh, we'll talk about that a little later. Uh, let's talk to Tim Hinchy and, uh, and, you know, one thing, Rich, before we do that, I think would be helpful that I, I, I touched on, but I think we'll, we'll talk to Tim a little bit about this, is the objectivity versus subjectivity. One of the things that there was a, a trend within the Olympic movement, uh, you know, maybe a couple of quads ago, to try to avoid having subjective selection procedures because, A, those are the kind of things that get challenged. You know, Rich Young doesn't like me, so he's not going to select me. Um, and it's, it just doesn't feel as fair, and you like to have the objective side of it. The pendulum has swung a little bit back, I would say, because then you run into the situation of, you know, what happens if you have the greatest Olympian ever? Go back to Michael Phelps, who was clear was going to win lots of Olympic medals. What happens if he gets sick uh, over the course of the trials or pulls a muscle, which will be healed by the Olympics, but he can't swim in the trials? Do you really keep him off the team because you're, it's purely objective? Uh, one of the things that we have seen is the USOPC has said, okay, we recognize you have to have subjectivity, but we want you to have defined criteria that you're going to evaluate when you make your subjective selection. So it can't just be, I like Joe better than Barry or Susie better than Sally. It is, I have these 10 criteria and when I, go through them, I really think Sally wins out over Susie in those criteria. Probably easier when you have uh, scores or times or specifics as opposed to this is an experienced athlete who is a great individual leader and brings that kind of characteristic to the team. 
That's right. And that's and that's something, you know, if you're picking the team that's gonna win an Olympic medal, you need those, you know, glue people they're a lot of times referred to, you know, that really bring the team together, have the leadership, have gone through it before, but they might not necessarily be the most talented player and that can create some hard feelings if I feel like I'm more talented than you and yet you got selected. Let's talk to Tim. Sounds good. So, Tim, you just finished the Olympic trials in Omaha. Uh, everyone I've talked to said they were a huge success. Uh, they were very different than prior years. Tell us about it. No, thanks, first and foremost, for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with some of our great partners. Um, it, listen, it was it was a daunting task, right? You know, you know, 15 months ago when the announcements came that things were going to be postponed, I'll be honest, we went to work on trials right away. We understand that in our organization that every four years, in this case five years, uh, Olympic trials is uh, is our most important event, right? It's the opportunity for us, number one, to select the Olympic team and nominate that team to the USOPC, but it's also a chance for us to showcase our sport uh, at the highest level possible, you know, on NBC Live every night, et cetera. So trying to find a way to do that, understanding that none of us had a crystal ball at this point in terms of what COVID would be like and what would take place, we had to have plans A to pl- probably plan F, like A, B, C, D, and F, like which was the way we've always had it, which is sellouts. And I'll remind you that it was sold out a year ago, that every ticket was sold prior to COVID. Uh, to, you know, what are the percentages that are safe, working with our medical doctors and our medical experts, working with the host city, you know, how do we make sure the athletes get safe? How do we keep our promise? I think that's the area that we're most proud of, uh, Rich, is that we were able to keep our promise, not just to the athletes that had a chance to make the Tokyo Olympic team, but to those young athletes, those 15 and 16-year-olds that for the first time made that cut and want to get to Omaha and want to race in the Olympic trials. We also know that those 15 and 16-year-olds become very relevant four years later after having that experience. So we're very blessed. I think the coaches, athletes did a wonderful job. We did over 7,500 COVID tests, only one positive test, which was an outside vendor, not even an athlete. So just a a job well done. Mike Unger, uh, obviously, and Shana Ferguson from our group deserve a lot of credit. But credit to everybody that participated, our volunteers, officials, et cetera. So very pleased that we got it done. You know, it's interesting. Some individual sports like gymnastics have very small Olympic trials. I think they had 17 women at their trials. How many people did we have at our trials? So in wave one this year, we had just under 700 athletes compete. And in wave two, we had just under 600 athletes compete. So, which is actually down quite a bit from 16, where they had a couple, about 300 more athletes participate. So, uh, it was very manageable. The coaches liked that, quite frankly, which is why I think looking at this wave one, wave two, maybe something we continue to, to bring forward. Explain to the listeners what wave one and wave two meant. So, you know, we basically looked at our, our, our group did, not me, our, our experts on the national team division and our data analytics group took a look at what, what times are relevant to, you know, what was the lowest seed time that eventually made an Olympic team? And we found out that about the 41st, the, 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 someone that had been 41st seeded actually made the finals and made the team at one point in, uh, in a historical fashion. So the idea was, okay, let's make that wave two cut. So we know that those that are making wave two are, are truly in the mix for making the team, right? They can have a chance to make it. Anything below that was the wave one cut, right? So we gave people a chance to still come and be part of it. The unique, the nuance that we threw into this, which I think was kind of fun, which is why people are interested 
is we still had a, you know, prelims and finals in, in wave one, just like we would in, in wave two. And that those individuals that made the final, the top two seat, the top two finishers, much like the top two finishers in wave two make the Olympic team, the top two finishers in wave one got to go on to the second wave of trials. So it was kind of a nuance and a fun thing. And what the coaches liked was these kids got second swims for the first time in the trials. They, they, they wouldn't have, right? They wouldn't have been seated high enough to get a second swim in the normal trials. So this first trials, they got to get their name in lights. They got to come out under lights. They got to get a second swim. And they got to feel what it might feel like if they're competing for the Olympic team in three years from now. So it was a nuance, but it was, it was very cool. It was well-received. And, again, we still got to give these almost 700 kids a chance to swim and compete and have their parents there and their, and their family there and watch them. And yet we still got to keep the next 600 safely competing in wave two. And those were the ones that were really targeted as prospects to make the Olympic team. Great. And so, Tim, one of the things that's really neat about USA Swimming is that your criteria are purely objective. But when you look across the the range of NGBs, you have purely objective to purely subjective and all sorts of things in between. Uh, talk about USA Swimming's philosophy on being purely objective. And then I want to talk a little bit about whether there's been any kind of pressure or second guessing, you know, given what could happen in the worst case scenario? Well, that's a good question. You know, see, I think part of this is that this year, again, going back to COVID and thinking about all the potential circumstances uh, that, that could have arisen, you know, it was the last thing we wanted to do was select the team on paper, right? That, that's our, at USA Swimming, that would be our worst case scenario, not to have this objective opportunity where the athletes compete against one another and the, the fastest person, it, no matter what the time was, that fastest person gets to go to the Olympic team. That is really, really important to who we are at USA Swimming and the integrity of our sport. Uh, you know, there's a nuance with, with because of, you know, some extra events this year. Uh, kids qualifying for two events provide an opportunity for more relay swimmers. So there's a, there's a couple of complications that go into how we select our team overall. But ultimately, if you win your race individually, you are going to the Olympic team. That, at trials, in the finals, boom, that's it. The second place finisher, again, in many cases, you'll have to wait and see if there's a spot open, where they rank in the world, do they have their A cut for trial, for the Olympics. But overall, I would say it's pretty clear that the first and second place finisher in all individual events get a chance to go to the Olympics. And we want to maintain that. It, it's Again, it's truly, I think, remarkable to our sport that we get to do this. So this is, I mean, interesting, Tim. Um, you talk about fairness and integrity of the sport and the approach. There are a lot of countries who do that differently. Uh, and there are other sports in the U S who do that differently. Um, so let me give you a hypothetical. Uh, and, and I think I know what your answer is going to be. Katie Ledecky has not lost an 800 freestyle race since she was 15. Okay. That, makes her more than a prohibitive favorite to win a gold medal for the United States in that event. The morning hypothetical, the morning of finals of the 800 freestyle, she becomes deathly ill with food poisoning. Does she get to make the team to swim the 800 meters to win a gold medal for the United States? No, uh, she, she would not, right? And so you're correct. And, and the reality is, the good news is, hopefully she'd already made the team and she 
But, but let's go back to Guangzhou in 2019. I was there when she got ill and she pulled out of several races at the world championship. We were not able to, you know, put an alternate in. We were, you know, if she couldn't swim. So we simply lost that opportunity as a country to medal. And, and we were okay with that because Katie's health is more important to us, right? And that's, and I like that. I like to again, go back to integrity, go back to what our priorities are. Our priorities are our athletes at USA Swimming. So in that case, that's important. Similarly, you know, in trial, you could probably make the argument this year, Rich, that at the women's 200 IN, right? We had two women who have medaled or have been on major international teams that lost by a hundred, a couple hundredths of a second. Would we like to have Melanie Margalis or Madison Cox, veterans on the team? Of course we would. They're wonderful athletes, incredible women. They have incredible careers, but they didn't make it. They lost, right? And so instead, we have two young women that are going to represent us for the first time in this event. And I would argue that Madison and Melanie would absolutely be medal favorites at Tokyo. And yet, they're not going. And that's that's hard, right? But that's who we are, and we've been consistent like that as a sport for, for decades, and I think that's really important. And isn't that a testament, really, to the depth of uh, swimming in the United States that – yeah, you could lose a great athlete who doesn't win, but they're getting beaten by somebody who's a little better, which, and if you, if somebody ends up having to withdraw, you've got another great person ready to, ready to fill the spot. Yeah, that's a great point, right? And, you know, obviously I, I'm, I had my four years, four year anniversary here this past Monday, and it's, it's been a crazy four years. So to finally be at my first Olympics next week will be exciting. But to your point, I, you know, being a swimmer myself, being a former coach myself, knowing what our sport is all about, the depth, like you've talked about. You know, we haven't lost international competition since 1956. And that's a credit to our athletes and coaches of this great sport for decades and decades and decades. And it, and it is just mind-blowing to even come to this year's trials and see that happen again, where we have 11 teenagers uh, joining the team in Tokyo this year. We have 16 first-timers, the most ever, on an Olympic team this coming year. Uh, and it's a credit to the, it's a credit to the clubs and the coaches and the athletes that, you know, continue to want to excel in our sport. And that's, that's what makes it special. So Tim, has there ever been any, you know, the, uh, the argument that you hear is something like, you know, what happened? It goes back to what Rich mentioned earlier. You know, what happened if Michael Phelps pulled a muscle the week before trials or something? Has there ever been any, uh, pressure or thought within USA swimming to go to a more subjective selection procedure? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. And, and you're right. I think you've both used the two best possible examples in Michael Phelps. <laughs> uh, but for that, that's because we know the facts, right? The facts are that they are the best. They've been the best ever. They're two of the greatest Olympians ever. Michael, arguably the greatest Olympian ever. And I think Katie's on her way to be, be in that same conversation easily. Um, so it's worthy of consideration, right? But the reality is no. And I, and I give credit to Lindsay Mantenko and the Mike Ungers and Chuck Welgus and everyone before me that has always maintained the integrity of how we select the team. And so uh, it, it's a great fun thing to talk about maybe over an adult beverage, but the reality is we're going to stick with our plans and this is how it works. It's worked forever. And I think that is why people compete so hard to get to Olympic trials. That's why they prepare themselves and that's why they, they work hard to be uh, try to get themselves on the medal stand. And, and that's an interesting comparison, for example, to China who decided that even though Sun Yang didn't compete in the trials, if he became eligible in his doping case as a former, uh, as the, the current gold medal holder in the Olympics, he would get to compete. So, so not, not, not this year. 
<laughs> Good. Hey, Tim, one of the things, let's talk a little bit about selection procedures. Uh, one of the reasons why selection procedures become so important is because athletes who feel that they've been wrongfully denied an opportunity to make the Olympic team can go to arbitration before the American Arbitration Association. One of the things that, you know, for USA Swimming that's nice is because it's so objective, it really cuts down on the possibility that somebody's going to going to challenge it because, hey, you either won or you lost. Uh, talk a little bit about that, though, in, in your thinking, you know, when, when it comes time to put together selection procedures, you do face issues like replacements. You know, what happens if somebody gets injured, uh, somebody gets sick? How does that work within USA Swimming, and what's the thought behind that? Well, it's a good question, and probably, you know, Lindsay Mantenko and Lucinda Roberts would be able to give you much better answers than I can. Uh, you know, I, I'm involved. I get to sit in a room this year after the first night of the trials uh, and, and be kind of a fly on the wall and watch Lindsay and Coach Dave Durden, our head men's coach, and Greg Mean, our, our head women's coach, uh, talk about some of the complexities as, as it relates to, obviously, our selection process. And I think that one of the unique parts that happened this year was our 400 freestyle, men's 400 freestyle. We only had two swimmers that were uh, actually that were entered in the entire competition that had the A cut for the Olympics. So Zane Grothy and Kieran Smith. Kieran went on to win, right, the finals, and therefore it had the A cut. Therefore, was the immediate selection to the team, right? And that's stuff that we planned. In the next, uh, the next seven finishers in the finals, which did not include Zane, he didn't make the finals, did not have the A cut. So to sit there in that room and listen and watch about the scenarios that would take place here, which were quite difficult and quite challenging. So number one, and I hope this example is relevant to your, to your question. The, the reality is number one, they could all come back and do a time trial over that week. Okay. The next seven finishers, but we, but Jay Mitchell who was the second place finisher should go first because if you look at our selections, it's one or two, right? We want one and two to make it. Yet, let's say he did it all week. They all went that week. They all do a time trial. They all still don't make the cut. Zane Grothy has this cut, but he finished 11th. Do we decide after June 27th, which was the cutoff of the times, that we appoint Zane, or, or, or actually nominate Zane, I should say. We nominate Zane to the team for so that FINA and the, the Olympic, uh, Olympic folks could, could approve him. That could have possibly happened. But the reality was we made a determination that we wanted to provide the time trials in the order so that we could try to find a way to, again, meet our criteria, which is the first and second place finisher with the cut, go to the Olympics. And in this case, if you get a chance on YouTube or probably on our website, the second night, the next night, Jake decided to go by himself in a time trial after the rest of the finals took place that night. The crowds came down and stood, and he had to get up there by himself drop two seconds of his best time to make the cut so that we could maintain this integrity, maintain kind of our process the way we wanted. And the kid did it. And the place went nuts. He had to go out in a 200. His 200 cut had to be better than his personal best in the 200. And then he had to hold on to make the 345 cut, and he did it. And it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen in our sport, quite frankly. But even then, even then, because of his time and his selection, we need to make sure enough other American men had doubles so that we knew that second place time would count. And he actually, even though he did it on Tuesday night, he wasn't actually named to the team until Saturday. So again, a lot of complexities and hopefully that shed a little bit of light on, on, on what can or cannot happen. 
But that was an integrity moment, right? And, and Zane is a terrific national team member, has been, but it would have been really difficult to jump him across that process without finishing second. And that was that was a real a lot of heartache uh, and discussion. And and the coaches thoughtful, uh, very considerate, fairness, uh, got you know emotional, all of it. And 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 we're very fortunate that it worked out the way it did. That's is a great example. Thanks, Tim. So, Steve, that was interesting talking to Tim. Uh, I, I'm impressed with the integrity point where if Michael Phelps or Katie Ledecky doesn't touch the wall first, they're not guaranteed to swim that event in the Olympics, even though in Katie's case, she hasn't been beaten in the 800 since she was 15. Yeah. Um, not an easy decision to make. Yeah. I mean, you're giving up. I mean, maybe, maybe the, the woman who swims in her place will win a gold medal, but you're giving up a pretty darn sure thing. Um, even then though, USA Swimming with their integrity and first to touch the wall has had selection procedure disputes where you've, you've talked about section nine and how an athlete who, uh, didn't make the team can challenge. Um, between us, how many, uh, selection procedure cases do you think we've had to do? Well, I would, I would say over a hundred, uh, uh, working with probably 25 or more sports over the years. You know, this is, these come up, you know, obviously in the Olympic years, but even in off Olympic years, you'll get challenges to making the world championship team or, uh, you know, a, a World Cup or something. Or Pan Am Games. Pan Am Games. And those take on even more importance when they end up being considered in the process to select who goes to the Olympics. So they become really important. So in, in the cases you've done, what what are, what takeaways do you have from those? I mean, they're, they're all different. They're all different facts. But yeah, it, in, any general takeaways? You know, and sometimes the, you just the craziest things happen. Um, you know, I, I guess a, a few things I would think of. I mean, number one, it's the the selection procedures become really important, uh, and I think it, it also becomes important to have uh, an objective or fresh set of eyes look at those because sports people understand that, you know, in our sport, this is the way we do things, and so you may not write it expressly on paper that this is the way we do things, but when you get to a challenge, it's going to be heard by an arbitrator who does not know your sport, and the arbitrator is going to look at your selection procedures and say, well, this is how I read it, and it may not incorporate what everybody in the sport knows. So that, that becomes important. Um, a couple of areas where I've seen challenges, uh, one is that it comes up from time to time is what I'll call an all-star team versus the winner in competition. And by that, I mean uh, in an NGB has a multiple-player uh, sport. Uh, take rowing where you have, you know, in addition to singles, but you also have doubles and quads and eight-person boats. And uh, in some of the smaller, we had a number of challenges where the NGB wanted to bring the best athletes together, mix and match them, and say, this team is the best team, gives us the best team uh, to win a medal. 
Whereas some of the athletes wanted to say, I want to pick my buddy and I'll race against anybody and I think I'll win and therefore I should go to the Olympics. Uh, and I've seen that you know, very similar thing in uh, like synchronized swimming. And so we've been able to be successful and to be able to protect the ability of the NGB to put together the all-star team. But, uh, you know, it creates tough feelings because somebody will inevitably feel like I should be able to pick my team and I want to be able to qualify with that team. Um, the other thing is that it, it becomes very important to be able to uh, show your work in the selection process, especially when you get into uh, subjective selection. And so by that I mean, if, you know, we talked a little bit earlier, Rich, about you want to have the criteria that you're going to make your subjective selection by. And uh, the arbitrator is going to say, okay, these are the 10 criteria you're using. Uh, walk me through your evaluation. Why did you pick Steve Smith over Rich Young? And you know, we had a situation where uh, a coach would say, oh, you know, I think this team was the best and uh, it would not be better to mix and match, you know, going back to the earlier example. But we were able to go back, look at the rankings and the uh, pluses and minuses that they gave to each of the athletes, and we could show that very coach in her evaluation actually found another athlete paired with somebody else was better and more likely to have a better team. And because you're able, we were able to show that work, that was really important. Rich, how about for you? You've done a lot of these. What, what are some things you've seen? Um, I think Tim gave us a pretty good example of the men's 400 and what do you do if your top two finishers don't have the A cut, which means that if you don't make the A cut under FINA rules, you don't swim in the Olympic Games. And that, again, is one of those things that you'd hardly ever think about, but it needs to be in your selection procedures. It is all those unforeseeable things that happen, and I think they came up with a, a very fair solution there. Um, when when you're doing these cases, sometimes it's really hard to have objective criteria. I was a mediator in a women's softball case where they had lots of, they had a camp, they had lots of inter-squad scrimmages, and the question was the uh, head coach picked one infielder and another infielder thought she should be picked. Uh, and when you went back to the statistics, they were almost useless because at that particular time we had the two best women pitchers in softball, maybe ever, uh, and they struck everybody out. <laughs> Virtually every game was a no-hitter. And so, you know, Batting averages were, you know, you're both zero, but how many balls did you get in play? And there weren't many balls in play, so you didn't have a lot of fielding opportunities either. And then you get into something that coaches, and I think most athletes recognize as being really important, is your glue to the team and experience and leadership and all of that. 
but that's also beauty in the eyes of the beholder. So that's a problem. I mean, one of the things that I have found important in team selection cases is to get the athlete who will lose their spot on the team involved. Uh, in the Section 9 process, it is the athlete who didn't make the team filing a challenge against the national governing body. So the parties are the unhappy athlete and the national governing body. But if the unhappy athlete wins, somebody who's on the team gets booted off. And so it's really important to bring them into the proceeding so they have a right to say their piece as well. In fact, the the procedure has or the the process has a procedure to do just that to make sure it is fair. Because a number of years ago, I know there was a in wrestling we had the situation where one athlete would go to this court and got a favorable ruling, another athlete went to another court and got a favorable ruling, and then what do you take? And you know there was never at that point one unified hearing that decided for everything. So that's become a very important thing. And there are other there are other just you know, there, there's the timing of somebody has who's on the team has a positive doping test. They're still on the team until their case is heard, but their case doesn't get heard until after the entry deadline. What do you What do you do then? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's the situation where. In women's hockey, it was pretty clear that we were going to have, it was going to be the U.S. and Canada in the finals. And the coach's decision that one woman who was a defenseman would be better against the Canadians than another. It's pretty subjective, but it, it may be the key to beating the Canadians in the gold medal game. That's so. right. I mean, you think back to it, I mean, they, Greatest upset in the history of sports probably was the U.S. men's hockey team beating the Russians in 1980, and that was largely selected by the coach, Herb Brooks, and he had his guys that he wanted, and it turned out to be successful. But obviously it's going to leave some people feeling unhappy that they didn't get selected. There may have been better hockey players who weren't on the team. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Steve, that was a lot of fun. Tim Hinchy was great. Uh, Thanks to everyone who is listening, and we invite you to join us on our next podcast.